Our text for today comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't those who are speaking Galileans? That is how each of us hears them in our native language. Parthians, Medes, Alamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are an elementary student, you may follow me upstairs. All right. I uh, have some friends who are having this text from Acts 2 read in like six or ten different languages today, uh, rather than just having it read in English as uh, a sign of all of the ways in which the gospel uh, moves across cultures. And I thought to myself, man, that would be really cool. But then I thought, uh, I, don't, I don't know if they want to spend the whole time <laughs> listening uh, to people read the scriptures, but uh, it's a powerful day. Uh, the day of Pentecost is this day that we set aside, not uh, as a means of just remembering something that happened, but as a means of participating in, some, in a present reality of God. The word Pentecost, if you're unfamiliar, uh, it comes from the Greek word that just means 50th, because Pentecost is 50 days after uh, the Feast of Passover, or after Easter. Um, this day, Pentecost Sunday, is, was originally a Jewish holiday. It was the, celebrated the Feast of Weeks, which was a harvest festival uh, for the Jewish people. Uh, but, it has become, uh, a, but it has become a day where Christians all throughout the world, literally tens of millions of us, uh, hundreds of millions of us, uh, celebrate this day together as a way of remembering the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, and the kind of generative power that the Spirit has in our lives. Uh, but there's something interesting, I think, about this Pentecost Sunday because it's not just an event in history that we celebrate. It's not just an event in history that we celebrate. Sometimes we celebrate events or we commemorate events that took place, right? We celebrate our birthdays or we celebrate some momentous uh, event in history that took place that shaped our world, like Pearl Harbor or the time that the Hawkeyes made the Rose Bowl. Uh, this is the, none of those should be celebrated because they lost every one of them, but you know what I mean. But Pentecost isn't one of those types of events that we commemorate in that way. Actually, I believe Pentecost is meant to not be a day that we celebrate in the past, but rather is to be something more like a commencement address that's given at college. You know, a commencement address, we've been seeing a lot of those these days, is something that happens that be, is the beginning of something, right? 
the someone someone gets up in front of people and makes this proclamation that you you are now beginning your life as a graduate right and you get to go out into this larger world and there's something of the the pentecost event that we celebrate on pentecost sunday that is a kind of commencement of the church or of the mission of the church now jesus right before he ascends into heaven says this thing to his disciples. He gives them an instruction, actually. And he, uh, he says, go to Jerusalem and wait for something. Could you imagine how kind of hard that would have been for them to get their heads around? Like, what are we waiting for? We know we desperately need something to happen, but what is it that, de- that needs to take place? Before they can preach and teach the message that Jesus is Lord in the world, they need some thing. This is what he tells them in Luke 24. He says, he told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send you uh, what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Jesus tells his disciples to wait for something, Uh, And what he asks them to wait for is described in our teaching text for today. It's the giving of the Holy Spirit. It's the um, magnanimous power of God, right? Jesus seems to believe that what happened uh, to this really small group of disciples is uh, before they can go out and actually spread that news, functionally what we have in the story of Pentecost is a group of people who were eyewitnesses to the, to the work and ministry of Jesus. They'd been able to submit to the good news of the, the Jesus is Lord because they knew that Lord or he had appeared to them in, the, in post-resurrection, but they didn't have something that they needed. They needed some other thing. And what they needed happened on the day of Pentecost when they were infilled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I say this word, Pentecost, all kinds of things might come to your mind, right? The primary one being a stream of Christians or a type of Christian in the world that is often called a Pentecostal or charismatic Christian. And this is a good thing. Pentecostals took their name from this event because they believe, they believe themselves to be a renewal movement of the Spirit within the larger global Christian family. This is what happened at the turn of the 20th century when when certain groups of Christians began taking on this name Pentecostal. They wanted to kind of recapture the dynamic of the Holy Spirit as as a normative practice in the life of everyday Christians. And it worked. This renewal movement actually paid off. Today, if you look all throughout the world, if you were to take every Christian in the world and you were kind of to average them out, so this is hard to do, but you take the average Christian in all the world and you, and you took one of that, that one person out, that person would be a Pentecostal or a charismatic Christian. Uh, now, they might, have, they might be Methodist or they might be Anglican or they might be Presbyterian or they might be Assemblies of God, but, they, but, they are, but that person would be Pentecostal, which is fascinating, isn't it? I was at a retreat center, and I was talking to a Catholic priest. We were actually uh, getting ready to pray together, just he and I. And before we started to pray, he asked me what I did. And I said, oh, I'm a pastor in an Assemblies of God church. If, if you're not aware, our church uh, is affiliated with the Assemblies of God. 
uh, and he got, he got this really excited look on his face before we prayed, and he said, oh, I'm a charismatic too. And I thought, good, uh, I guess this will take now or something. <laughs> no, that's not what I thought. He was a very good guy. He was a very nice guy. You see, Pentecostal is not a style of church. It's not. It's, it's not only a handful of denominations that talk a certain way about the, about the Holy Spirit. It's not even a set of theological commitments, a very narrow set of theological commitments. A Pentecostal church and a Pentecostal Christian is anyone who makes the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and then chooses to live and walk in the rhythms of God's empowering presence. That's what a charismatic Christian is. And this is why Pentecost is not an event we remember Rather, we remember it as a kind of commencement because it is a jumping off point in the same way that an encounter with the Spirit is a jumping off point in our faith as well. But there is a mistake that often gets made when we talk about the story of Pentecost. There's a mistake that gets made from time to time. And that mistake is that we can think that the story began in Acts and we forget that there was a whole set of stories and truths before this day of Pentecost actually occurred in Acts that informed or helped the, these first disciples to understand what was really happening here. Uh, it, truly, this is the truth, if you're going to understand the power and the significance of Pentecost Sunday, what it means for an individual and what it means for an individual life and what it means for the whole of the kingdom of God, we have to set the story of Acts 2 within its larger scriptural context. Otherwise, we don't understand the way that these first disciples understood what was actually happening. You see, Pentecostal people can sometimes make the mistake of embracing a story that begins in Acts 2, and that story turns out to be too small, actually. You can just, you can just make it about Holy Spirit goosebumps, Right? This happens from time to time. But by placing Acts 2 within the larger context of the rest of the story of Scripture, we can get a fuller picture of what happened to those first disciples. But we can also come to understand more fully what, the, what this story of, of Pentecost means to each and every one of us. So as we uh, look, understand the kind of larger narrative or the story that's occurring in the Scriptures, we can actually begin to make sense of what this means for us in our day. And so for us to answer, and so for us, what I want to do today is just answer that question that we heard asked at the end of our teaching text. What does this all mean? What does it all mean? We have to look back in the story of the scriptures and tie those, uh, tie those disparate ends of that story together in order to make uh, a fully formed picture and to really understand what's going on. And the first thing I think that's going on when we look at the whole of the story of Scripture and place the Pentecost Sunday within it is that Pentecost makes an, the external law internal. This, I think this is a fundamental idea that we have to understand when we're understanding what took place on that day. The Old Testament, if you're not familiar, is the story of God's interaction with the people of Israel. And all throughout there is this tension that they experience in their interaction with God. God leads the people out of captivity in Egypt. He gives them the Ten Commandments in the book of the law. He shows them how to live 
as a people who are set apart from the world, who are, who are made holy or distinct from the world in order to communicate to the world what this one God is like. But they can never really do that. There's some frustration occurring. They have this external law that they are expected to follow, and it is quite difficult for them. They, they, they struggle with it. And there's a frustration that often builds up in the Bible, both between the people and God himself. And it's what the prophets are always talking about. There's, there's this, there seems to be this inability for the people of Israel to follow after God. To, to align their lives with this external law. But even amid their failure and their failings, there are these little rays of hope that kind of get burst into the story of Israel's struggle. Little glimpses of what God will do for his people in order to help them to live for him, to live as faithful uh, representatives of God in the world. And uh, one example of this is found in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 through 34, here's what we read. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. That line, I will, uh, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's covenantal language if you're familiar with the story. It's a covenantal line. God says to Abraham when he first begins, uh, says this line to Abraham when he first begins to set out for himself a people. And Jeremiah's prophecy here is a reaffirmation of the promise that God will indeed fulfill his promise. And there is actually coming a day when people will have the law as a thing that is external to them, something that they externally attempt to conform their lives to, but is rather something written on the tablet of their heart. Rather, there will come a day where God writes his very words on their hearts and on their minds. But notice that this writing of the law on the hearts coincides with what verse 32 says, right? The forgiveness of sins. Those two things go hand in hand. Now, if you do one thing for me, if you have your Bible, if you can hop to Luke uh, 24. In, in Luke 24, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this, beginning in verse 46. He says this, he told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses to these things. I am going to send what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Do you see the connection between uh, Jeremiah and what Jesus says here in Luke, Luke uh, verse 47, uh, what does Jesus say? He ties the coming of the Spirit to the repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the same way that Jeremiah does. Jesus seems to think that his death and resurrection have triggered the forgiveness of sins, right? Or will trigger the forgiveness of sins. Um, and when you piece that together with Jeremiah's prophecy, uh, 
there is, you see that there is this one more piece that Jesus wants to see happen. Jesus' death and resurrection made it possible in a real way for God to dwell with us via his spirit, to both empower and enable us to love God and to love like he loves and to put his words on our hearts. And at Pentecost, the promise long awaited in the Old Testament of this day in which the, the very word of God would dwell inside of us or be written on our hearts comes to fruition. It comes to fruition. Now, and it, and it manifests in a way, in an unexpected way. I have spent a little bit of my time not a ton of my time, but I've had some assignments. People have assigned this to me where I've had to read the stories of early Pentecostals. And by early Pentecostals, I mean turn of the 20th century uh, Christians who embrace the work of the Spirit in their lives. And uh, it's really fun reading. They, they write in a way that's a little different, but it's really fun reading. And one of the things that they write about often is what the, what the, what the witness or the sign of the presence of the Spirit in their life, in, in the life of a Christian is. And honestly, uh, they, this is kind of funny, but they don't talk about the things you expect them to talk about. If you grew up in a Pentecostal t- context, you would think that they would talk about uh, speaking in tongues. And they talk about that, but that's not the primary thing they talk about. Uh, they don't say that the primary witness that uh, the Spirit is present in a group of people is that they spend eight hours at the altar. That's not what they say. They don't talk about gold dust or angels singing or people getting slain in the Spirit or anything of that nature. They, again, those things were present with them, but that, that's not the primary thing they focus on. The, you know what they talk about the most as the primary symbol or sign of the presence of the Spirit in a person's life? This might shock you. Love for Jesus. (laughs) Love for Jesus. Most of them say that when we encounter the Holy Spirit, the thing that grows in us is not not a kind of spiritual power that allows us to shoot electricity out of our fingers or something like that. Uh, That's a sign of the dark side, by the way. Uh, They talk about... They talk about how the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives focuses a deep and humble love for Jesus. And that makes sense, doesn't it? It makes a lot of sense because Jesus himself, when he sums up the law and the prophets, what does he say it's about? Loving God and loving people. And so if that very word, if the, if the, if the purpose of the Spirit of God is to write that very word in our hearts, the thing that happens when we encounter the Holy Spirit should be Love for Jesus and love for people. And so a true encounter with the Holy Spirit, uh, a true experience of God's love in our lives, when the words, the very word of God is written on the tablet of our hearts, would inevitably show itself most prominently in our willingness or in in our desire to love God and love people. It's this deep and abiding love. Sorry. I'm just going to hold a coffee and preach with it. Uh, This deep and abiding love for Jesus that happens in our lives when we encounter the Spirit. 
some of the some of the things that happen when we when we talk about this is that we think that the primary sign of the presence of the spirit in our lives is quote unquote spiritual behavior, right? And those things are real, and I, and I think they're valid, and I think that uh, my my desire for each and every one of us is that we would experience the significance and the power of an encounter with the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? There, there's no, we, we desire that, and I think it's a normative experience for, the, for, for every Christian. But the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, if it is not accompanied by love for Jesus and love for other people, doesn't amount to a hill of beans. It really doesn't. But, and here's the thing. The deep work that God wants to do in our lives, I believe, and the deep work that the Spirit wants to do in our lives is he wants to deepen our love for Jesus because that transforms everything about us. And very often the Spirit is wild, right? He is unpredictable. He cannot be tamed or always explained. But it is never separated from love for Jesus and love for other people. And if it's ever separated from either of those things, we have got our wires crossed. So the story we read about in this on in the story of Pentecost is a story of something wild happening, right? Read the story. There's all of these people from these different places with different languages, different different understandings, all there to apparently worship the one true God of Israel. But they hear the they hear the disciples praising God in their own language. And their first response is, those people are drunk, right? That what they see is a kind of disorder at first. But, it, but notice that the, the wildness of God here and the unpredictability of the, of, the, of the Spirit doesn't lead to a con, ever-continuing unpredictability, Right? Have you ever been around somebody that you were like, that person's crazy, right? I have no idea what they're going to do. And sometimes it's scary, right? Not being able to make sense out of what someone's going to do is a very scary thing, right? They could, they could hurt me or they could, you know, you never want to be in the passenger seat with a person who's driving who's like this, right? It's not, it's not a comfortable place to be. And, and those people never tend to like, be calm or, or, or produce anything of any good fruit in their lives. But here's the thing about the presence of God. It is wild and it is unpredictable. But in the story of the book of Acts, this wild and unpredictable spirit results in unity. Not in, not in, uh, not in just kind of craziness fly off the handle, Right? What begins as a kind of unpredictable experience becomes intelligible, right? So the, the crowd sees these people kind of doing something crazy, but what happens? The, God begins to bring clarity and unity out of this unpredictable experience. That's part of what the speaking in tongues was all about. It was to signify that the, that the word of God is now going into all people and it's going to become cogent or, or explainable or understandable to everyone. It's a reversal of the Tower of Babel in a sense. You see, uh, God cannot be fit into our tightly held boxes, right? God can't be hemmed in. God is wild, and God is unpredictable. If he weren't, then he wouldn't be God, 
But the result of the work of God is always unity. Notice what at the end of chapter 2, so you have all of this going on, right? You have, you have all of this craziness, and then at the end of chapter 2, this is what we read about the church, beginning in verse 40, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and, and there were many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. What, what began with this wild, unpredictable thing, right, kind of terminated in a unity. And what does Paul say? Strive, make effort to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. The thing that, the, the, the results of the Spirit, though unpredictable and wild and very often catch us off guard, always terminate in a kind of unity of purpose in mind and of heart. I've seen far too many people who use the Spirit as an excuse for the opposite of unity happened far too many times. I've seen it. But if I'm, if I'm reading this text correctly, the natural progression of the work of God in our midst and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that it doesn't push us away from one another, but brings us closer together. That we dwell together, that we, that we break bread together, that we meet in one another's homes, that we sell our property and possess, I'm just reading now, sell our property and possessions and give to anyone who has need, right? The Spirit does not separate people. The Spirit unifies people. People who were separate or different from one another after this outpouring of the Spirit in, in Pentecost begun, begin to come together. And it is not until the unifying presence of the Holy Spirit is written on the hearts and lives of Jesus' followers that they can then go into all of the world and begin to make one family out of a diverse and segmented human race. What the church does when it's at its best, when it is mobilized and animated by the Spirit, is that it is a unifying force in the world, bringing people from all tribes and all tongues and all nations under the banner of Jesus. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But in our day, many people in this world believe the church to be a fracturing force. I saw a little video this week that said, for the first 1,100 years of the church, there was one church, and then it split into two, and it went to east and to west, if you know church history, it went into the Catholic and to the Orthodox, and then in the west in the 1600s, it split again into, uh, into Protestant and Catholic, so you have three, right, groups of Christians, and then those three split into about eight, and then those eight split into about 25, and now we have, I don't know, 300,452 different kinds of Christians, and we all call our churches first whatever, right, within with our name afterwards, and it's distracting, right, and it's a little discouraging, 
And I'm not saying I'm not saying that it's all wrong or that or that the church should have never uh, that reform movements within the church are bad because I think reform movements within the church are necessary. Uh, and the book of Revelation is writing to churches to trying to reform them, right? But, but the reality of what the Spirit does in our lives is that it captures our hearts, and here's the takeaway for this morning, it should capture our hearts and bring us close to Jesus and to help us to love others, and it should be, bring unity out of the diversity of our lives. That's what, that's what the church looks like when the Spirit is at work. And there's all, other, all kinds of other stuff that happen too, right? When the Spirit's at work, people, we do believe that people get physically healed. That happens. When the Spirit's at work, we do believe that people, have, that people have literal encounters with the presence of God that transforms them. That happens too. But if there's not unity and there's not love for Jesus, that stuff is, actually can be destructive. And so this morning, if the band could come up, this morning, I just want us to, uh, to take a little time out what to, not, I'm not putting you in time out, but to take a little bit of time out this morning and just kind of uh, open ourselves to the work of the Spirit in, in, this, in this place this morning, knowing full well that God wants to have his work in our hearts, doesn't he? God always has something he's attempting to accomplish in our lives. He always has some area of our lives where he's trying to get access. He's always, uh, he's always stirring under the surface of our lives, and he's inviting us into deeper waters. And this morning, if you're uh, here and you're willing, if you just stand with me for a moment. And in an attitude of prayer, wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, I'm first going to pray a prayer that uh, I found this morning by, uh, by a pastor, a theologian that I really like. His name's David Taylor, and he, and he wrote a prayer, uh, and he put it on Instagram, so Instagram's good for something. But I'm going to pray this, and then I want us to uh, just open our lives, just where we're sitting, to the work of the Spirit in our midst, all right? And just say that, that simple and ancient prayer, come Holy Spirit be near us. And we'll see where things go. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Spirit of God, you who unite us, we pray that you would reanimate our hearts with the life of God, that you would attune our minds to the mind of Christ and bind us together in spirited fellowship so that we might be a sign of the Trinity in the world this day. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. Father God, would you have your way in this place, Holy Spirit? Would you have your way? And just for a, a, just a moment, God, we cede the floor to you. We cede the floor to you. And we, we lay aside all of our, uh, 
all the stuff we have going today, our agenda, our, uh, <laughs> our busy schedules, God. And we say, have your way in our lives. Have your way in our lives. Have your way in our lives. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come? We're going to sing. Let's sing this song as a response to God. All right? Let's sing. Yeah. Sing together. Riches I heed not. Riches I heed not. Nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance. Father, we love you. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. If you're in this place today, and you do, you need prayer. 
you need a touch from God. Maybe it's just a hunger deep in your heart for something a little bit more. Maybe it's uh, a physical ailment. There's some problem in your body. Would you just raise your hand now if, if you'd be so willing? And if uh, you or see somebody with their hand raised around them, would you just reach out a hand? Uh, and just, just in a, let's just pray. Let's just pray that God, uh, that God's Holy Spirit would meet these people right now in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come and would you reach your hand of provision and care out to these individuals right now in the name of Jesus? Father, I pray that if, there's an, if somebody's experiencing an ailment in their body right now in the name of Jesus, that you would, uh, by your love and by your spirit, that you would heal them, God. That you would heal them in the name of Jesus. And if somebody's experiencing an ailment of mind, maybe, some, maybe anxiety has just been, uh, maybe it's a care or a concern in their family. God, would you work. Holy Spirit, would you work right now in the midst of that situation? Right now in the midst of that situation, would you work? And would you bring healing and wholeness? If somebody's in the, in the, in the, the long night of the soul, God, would you show them a light, the, the light that is your love? And would they see and know that you're present with them and that you carry them? Jesus, we're so thankful that your spirit is an ever-present comfort to us. The, the paraclete, the helper, the one who gives us comfort in our times of need. And we're so thankful, Jesus, that you died on the cross and that you rose again. And that you made possible for us to, uh, to span the gap of our own sin and be drawn close to you. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for today. We pray, God, that you would continue to work in our hearts and our minds, and that your love would be what draws us, that, that, that love for Jesus would be the song of our lives, the song of our lives. And we pray it all in that name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen and amen. All right. Well, thanks for being at church today. It's good to be together on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, I always think that Pentecost Sunday is the beginning of the summer, even though most people treat Memorial Day as the beginning of the summer. Uh, I treat Pentecost Sunday as the beginning of the summer. Say next week we're going to begin a new series uh, about, uh, about beauty and goodness, about why, why it's important to have beautiful and good things in your life, right? And so it's kind of a message about art. So if you're into art, it'll be fun. If you're not, you'll have to deal with it. Uh, go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.